The reading today is from Acts 1, verses 1 through 11. The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven after he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you heard of from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, they also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the way as you have watched him go into heaven." This is the word of God. It is absolutely true, and it is given to us in love. Good morning. So uh, I take a little responsibility for the, uh, the, the, the Bible's passage being wrong. I usually communicate with uh, Michael which one of several I could have used, and I forgot to do that. So uh, they picked a nice one, but it just doesn't happen to be the one I'm preaching on. Um, I don't know where the name of the sermon came from. Uh, I think that was a, from a couple of weeks ago. So we're going to talk about going home today. We're going to talk about the ascension of Jesus. All right. So as most of you know, we've been going through uh, the Bible this year, really since June, really through almost the entire Bible. And we've been doing this by taking Bible stories found in the Jesus storybook, uh, to kind of walk us through the work of God in redemptive history, starting with creation onward. Now, this has really been a study in what is called biblical theology. You're probably thinking, isn't all theology biblical? And yes, of course it is in a very important sense, but there are other types of theology. You might be most familiar, and I'm actually most comfortable, honestly, with the study of God or theology by looking at various topics. That's called systematic theology. But when you walk through the Bible, as we've been doing, and look at its historical literary setting and understand how all these stories relate to each other, they relate to Jesus and relate to us, that's actually called biblical theology. So that's what we've been doing these past five to six months. And we are at the end of our series. In some ways, the end of the story is today, because we're going to talk about the ascension of Jesus, Jesus going home. And yes, there is the history of the early church and the mystery and beauty of the book of Revelation and the rest of the New Testament, but they mainly serve to help us understand how the ascension of Jesus applies to those who have become his followers. One could say that the ascension is both an end 
and a beginning. And I hope you'll see that as we go through today. Now, if you've been going through the Jesus Storybook with your family with us over this time, you may have noticed that a few chapters were skipped between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Those were the narratives of Jesus' first coming, his advent. And that was not an oversight by Todd. Um, that was not an accident. Um, these are pieces we need to pick up. Um, but you know what? When should we think about Advent? But during Advent, all right? So Todd and Harrison are going to go back and pick up those stories we missed in the Jesus storybook and um, bring us through the Advent uh, season uh, coming up starting next week. The other thing I'd like to say as way of introduction is when I first saw the preaching schedule and I saw that I had to preach on the ascension of Jesus, I was actually a little bit worried. I mean, I know Jesus told the disciples that he has to leave in order for the spirit to come. But what else are you going to say about the ascension? I mean, I'm not trying to be flippant here, but he ascended. I mean, yeah. Okay. So what else is there? Um, But I got to tell you, after studying and preparing, I've determined that what you should say uh, is that I was pretty ignorant, okay? Uh, I didn't know what I was talking about. So I'm going to share with you a bit today of what I've learned about the necessity of the ascension and two implications of the ascension. Let's pray. Father, as we consider your going home, uh, of the going home of Jesus, rather, um, we uh, just pray that we would understand um, the implications of this for our lives, at least two that we might talk about today, and Lord, help us to apply them and to uh, make it so we can, in the words of the song, rest in Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, one could say that our entire text today is about the ascension, but strictly speaking, of course, it takes place in verse 9. And after he said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. Have you ever wondered why it had to happen this way? Have you thought why this kind of departure was necessary? Because if you go back through the last parts of all the Gospels, we will see Jesus literally coming and going, often supernaturally. In Matthew 28, Jesus appears to women who have come to the grave and tells them to have the disciples go to Galilee. There Jesus meets them and speaks to them, and then they depart from one another. In Mark 16, Jesus' appearance with the woman, women is again described, but there's also this passing reference to his appearing to two walking in their way in the country. Later in that same chapter, Jesus appears to the 11 disciples as they are eating. And verse 14, he reproached them for their unbelief and hardness of heart because they had not believed those who had seen him after he had risen. And again, he leaves. At the end of Luke, in chapter 24, Jesus appears to the two on the way to the village of Emmaus. You probably know that story. Jesus blessed and broke the bread. And verse 34, then their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. When they returned to Jerusalem that night, they hear that Jesus has also appeared to Simon. Later in Luke 24, verse 36, it says, while they were telling these things, he himself stood in their midst and said to them, peace be to you. Undoubtedly, it is true, as it says in the next verse, they were startled and frightened. I'm sure Jesus suddenly appears. Jesus goes on to eat some fish with them, and then again, they depart from one another. Last week, uh, Andy walked us through John 20, and I'm going to touch on that some today as well. But Jesus appears to Mary near the grave. 
Later in that same chapter, he came and stood in the midst of the disciples, though the doors were shut. And there he confronts the doubting Thomas. And in John 21, he appeared to some of them on the beach while they were fishing. So it's no wonder in verse 3 in our text today, it's summarized that says these appearance by Jesus. To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Put yourself in the place of the disciples. They have suffered the overwhelming trauma of Jesus' crucifixion and his death. They are now enjoying the indescribable thrill of his resurrection appearances. I'm sure as they were living in those heady and exciting days, they were always looking around. Where's he going to show up next? If Jesus simply ascends to heaven by disappearing once again, which he could have done, the disciples would be left wondering, when would he appear again? They would have just stayed around Jerusalem, waiting with bated breath, wondering, when will he appear again? But the ascension puts the kibosh on that. There's a finality to the ascension. Finality in the words that Jesus speaks, which we will come back to in a moment. Finality in the way in which he is removed from their sight. And finality in the words of the angels. Verse 9, after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. This was not the usual disappearance of Jesus, as happened, for example, on the road to Emmaus, or to the disciples in Emmaus, I should say. There is a finality in this party, right? They're not thinking he's coming back after this. And of course, this is confirmed by the angels, verses 10 and 11. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, Behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. They also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. Jesus will no longer be in their midst. His next coming will be from the sky and from the clouds. And so, see, this was the necessity of the ascension. The disciples had to know for certain that Jesus was no longer going to appear with his resurrected and glorified body in their midst. This is well summarized by one commentator who wrote, there was something final and decisive about his going this time. The resurrection appearances in which he condescended to his disciples' temporal conditions of life were visitations from the eternal order to which his body of glory now belonged. What happened on the 40th day was that this series of intermittent visitations came to an end with a scene which brought home to the disciples the heavenly glory of of their risen Lord. The ascension was not the beginning of his heavenly exaltation. It was the ultimate confirmation of the status that had been his from the moment of his resurrection. So the ascension was an end. But the passage today points out a second necessity, if you will, of the ascension, and that was of profound importance to his disciples and to us today as followers of Jesus. And as we consider the second necessity, this will help us transition into a couple of the meanings and implications of the ascension. And that second necessity, of course, is the gift and coming of the Holy Spirit. Verse 4 and 5, gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem 
but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said you heard of from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And verse 8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. So Jesus' ascension sets the stage for the coming of the Holy Spirit, and, his whole, and the Holy Spirit will empower his followers then and now to be his witnesses throughout the earth. So the necessary ascension is, in fact, not only an end, it is a beginning as well. So let's turn to consider two implications of the ascension for us today. Now, there are many, many, many more that we could consider. We could, we could spend the day considering them. Don't have that much time. Just don't have that much time. We're only going to consider two. Now, again, the first one is grounded in this coming of the Holy Spirit. And I want you to recall a few minutes ago, I asked you to put yourselves in the disciples' place. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm thinking how exciting that would have been to, see, to have seen the risen Lord in person. Oh, my God, goodness, the, the, the joy they would have been in the, that would have been in their hearts if, or it would have been in our hearts if we had been there. It would have been amazing. But what I don't think we fully realize most of our lives as followers of Jesus is that we have something better than the intermittent presence of the resurrected and glorified Jesus, as wonderful as that would be. We have something better. We have the Holy Spirit, one of the persons of the Godhead residing in our hearts. So I want to return to the passage again on which Andy preached last week and amplify and some, of those, some of the things he said and, and look at them a little differently. When Jesus appeared to Mary in John 20, she grabs hold of him. And in verse 17, he says, stop clinging to me, which literally means stop clinging to me so tightly. Why did Mary grab him so tightly? Why did she wrap his arms around him so tightly? Because she was afraid of losing him again, right? She had come to the tomb simply to be with Jesus' body. She'd asked Jesus, mistaking him for the gardener, where had he taken the body? And I agree with Andy. Andy said last week, even the presence of Jesus' dead body would have uh, comforted uh, Mary. But he's alive, He's in his resurrected body, and she is desperate. She is not going to lose him again. He tells him, stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father and my God and your God. Jesus is basically telling her, I have to leave. I have to ascend. And that recalls John 16 where Jesus tells the disciples he has to go to the Father in order to send the Helper, the Holy Spirit. Mary and all his disciples will have to let him go. And when they do, they'll discover that they never have to worry about losing Jesus again. Tim Keller states it this way, in a certain sense, Jesus is saying, Mary, let me go so I can ascend, so I can come into your heart, and then you'll never, ever lose me. Keller then quotes St. Augustine, you ascended from before our eyes and we turned back grieving only to find you in our hearts. This is the first implication of the ascension. The relational intimacy we have with Jesus because of the presence of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. 
And that presence of the Holy Spirit within us should be just as exciting, just as invigorating as if we were in the presence of the resurrected, glorified Jesus. And let me ask, do you, do I, often experience an intimacy with the Holy Spirit that is that exciting and that invigorating? I'd have to say for myself, no. Again, as Andy observed last week, I feel bogged down by those sins and failures. As a result, I don't often experience an intimacy with the Holy Spirit that is exciting and invigorating. For me, one big reason is distractions. I bet that's true for you as well. Again, I keep going back to things Andy have said. A few weeks ago, he talked about Calvin talking about being, having distractions. Calvin? Calvin lived hundreds of years ago. If he showed up today, he would think, talk about distractions. Holy cow, we got distractions galore around here. But, you know, I have this tendency to want to keep myself really busy, to be distracted. I often tell people I don't sit still well. I'm getting older. I'm partially retired. In 10 months, God willing, I'll be fully retired. I can still stay pretty active, but not as active as I once could. I have to stop and rest a little bit more than I used to, which I really hate to admit. So how am I feeling about all that? Right? We work all our lives so we can get to retirement. How are we feeling about all that? More anxious. That's what I'm feeling. And as Nanette and my community group will tell you, that anxiety can bubble up in some really funny ways sometimes. And when the everyday issues that confront us come up, I am overreacting because I have this ground-level anxiousness that's there. What's the solution for that? Well, my default, of course, is to get busy. Let's do things. Don't have to deal with it. But my solution needs to be to stop, confess that distractedness and fascination with new and old things, and try to live what Psalm 46.10 tells us to do, cease and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Cease and know that I'm God. So I want to dig into this a bit more because herein lies the problem with distractions. The problem is that the distractions themselves are not the problem. The problem is we're trying to fill a void in our hearts. Did you know that the eighth billionth person on earth was born last month? You are one of eight billion people. A generation or so after we are dead and gone, there's a good chance that no one will even know that we were ever here. That's certainly true for the vast, vast majority of those who've ever lived. I looked this up. Some people estimate that there have been 107 billion people who have lived on earth already. We don't know very many of those 107 billion. So if we're one of the 8 billion now, and we know that virtually none of those 107 billion are known now, in the back of our minds, it's easy for us to have this nagging thought that maybe life is a little bit meaningless. Even followers of Jesus can experience this. And it's, and it's easier to stay distracted than recognize that nagging meaninglessness and dealing with it. But God says the solution to that anxiety and nagging meaninglessness, 
that void in our heart is to stop and to know that he is God, indeed to know him. And it is through the gift of the Holy Spirit, a result of the ascension of Jesus, that he has provided us with a way to know the risen Jesus intimately, showing us that life need not be meaningless because it can be. And for the follower of Jesus is grounded in something permanent, long-lasting, indeed eternal. And that should help me deal with some of that anxiety. And it should be just as exciting, as invigorating, as life-giving as the bodily presence of the risen Jesus was to the disciples. Now, a second incredible implication of the ascension of Jesus is his advocacy for us, which should really be transforming us. You see, when Jesus ascended, he didn't just ascend into heaven in general. According to 1 Peter 3, he ascended to be at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. Now, the implication of the ascended glorified Jesus being at the right hand of God the Father are enormous. We read in Hebrews that Jesus is there as our high priest. Chapter 7, Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. And then in John, 1 John 2, 1 and 2, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins. Jesus is our high priest and our advocate. He is our lawyer, if you will. All right, now, I want you to think back about that nagging meaninglessness to which I referred a bit ago. And one response to meaninglessness is to stay distracted. But there's another response to feeling meaningless, and that is to seek recognition. And that's what we see all the time over the pages of social media, don't we? What do we see? People trying to prove themselves, trying to get recognized, if even for a moment, trying to get validated, trying to have someone else to say say to them, you're great, well done, you're incredible. Don't we all from time to time, or, or maybe a lot, whether on social media or in our work or in our families, seek this kind of approval? Of course, we all know what happens when someone is finally recognized, whether it's for a great song, great athletic success, great business success, whatever. That nagging meaninglessness returns, and we've all read of very successful people who succumb to depression, drugs, alcohol even suicide, after they're successful and recognized. Isn't that odd? The solution to this is the ascension of Jesus and his presence at the right hand of God. Why does John tell us that Jesus is our advocate? An advocate is a lawyer. Why do we need a lawyer before God? Because we have all broken the law. If you break the law and you got to go to court, You can represent yourself, but I don't advise it. You need a lawyer. We've broken the law. We all know that. Everybody knows that. Believers know that. Non-believers know they've broken the rules. We have repeatedly, significantly, even purposefully broken the law of God and done things we know we should not do. And we know that we deserve punishment. 
Talk about anxiety. Now, if heaven was a human courtroom, Jesus, our advocate, would be pleading to God, the judge, for his mercy. He would be saying something like, Father, you know Jim. You know how he's always saying he's not going to do this or do that anymore, but yesterday he did this or that again, okay? But I'm asking, please forgive him. Give him another chance, please. Is that your image of what Jesus is doing on your behalf? Pleading for God's mercy? If it is, it's incorrect. Because in this courtroom, Jesus is not asking the Father for mercy, which you may or may not get. Jesus is asking for justice, which you most certainly will get. Because, our, because Jesus, our advocate, our high priest, our perfect sacrifice is saying, Father, you know Jim, he did it again, but I'm not here to ask for mercy. I'm here to ask for justice. I paid his debt. I paid his debt on the cross with my blood and my broken body. I am the propitiation for Jim's sin. And it would be unjust for you to punish the same sin twice. I'm not asking for mercy. I'm asking for acquittal. I'm asking you to declare him not just forgiven, but to declare him not guilty. Let that sink in for a moment. Your advocate, my advocate, Jesus, has an infallible case before the judgment seat of the eternal God, and you are declared not guilty. This, frankly, is the ultimate recognition by the ultimate judge. All that other stuff we do to prove ourselves, to prove that we have meaning, that we're somebody, we're doing that in front of fickle human beings. They will forget you in an instant as soon as the next interesting thing crosses their face. In order to get the approval of the only person in the universe that matters, God. And we all know that's the only approval that really matters. We put our faith and our trust in Jesus, our advocate, as we ask him to be our Lord. And once we have done that, Jesus is before the Father advocating for us. And this advocacy, you see, removes that nagging meaninglessness. It removes that guilt we all have, and it should transform us. It certainly transformed Stephen in Acts 7. He was tried unfairly, taken out to be stoned to death, and as that was happening, he saw Jesus, his advocate, standing in the throne room of God. The result, his, it was, his face was radiant, and he forgave those who were stoning him. So if you feel like you're not being recognized, if you feel like you're a nobody, if you feel like you have to prove yourself over and over again, if you feel meaningless coming, meaninglessness coming on, Ask for the Holy Spirit to bring the reality of the ascension into your heart. And if you feel overwhelmed by your sin, ask the Holy Spirit to help you recognize that verdict of God over your life, not guilty. I would invite you today to consider how that could transform you and what that would mean in your life now and in the days and years to come.
Although we will go back over these next few weeks and pick up the Advent stories from the Jesus storybook, we are at the end of our look of redemptive history in Scripture. It ends with the ascension of Jesus, but our redemptive history and that of all followers of Jesus begins at the ascension of Jesus. The result of the ascension is the coming of the Holy Spirit and the presence of our perfecting advocate before the Father. We need not distract ourselves because we fear meaninglessness, because the presence of the Holy Spirit in our hearts is really the eternal presence of the resurrected Jesus, and that should be exciting and invigorating for us. Nor should we fear disapproval. We don't have to work so hard to find someone somewhere to approve us of us because the presence of Jesus, the perfect and perfecting advocate before the Father, should transform us to live fearlessly, humbly, and joyfully before the watching world. May it be so.